Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw. And we've got an interesting and slightly different show for you today. Today we are going to welcome Dr. Tina Tran back to the show Dr. Tran is famous for her show appearances on oral board prep, but today we're not going to be doing an oral board stem. Today, uh, Dr. Tran and I are going to talk about strategies for success as a learner and a teacher and even a clerkship director when you are involved in an anesthesia clerkship experience. So we're going to start off by talking about anesthesia learners If you are a medical student and you're going to go on an anesthesia rotation, what can you do to maximize your success and learning? Then we're going to turn to the residents and talk about what can a resident do to do a really good job teaching a medical student and just in general to work on your teaching skills as a resident. And finally, we will maybe have just a few pearls for clerkship directors out there on what we think is really successful in shaping your clerkship. So most importantly, I want to welcome Dr. Tran back to the show. Tina, thanks for coming back on. Great. Thanks for having me, Jed. All right. So, Tina, why don't we start by talking about uh, the student. So if there are medical students out there who are saying, you know, I've got my anesthesia rotation coming up and I want to be as successful as I can and learn the most that I can, Tina, what tips do you have for them to keep in mind as they go through the process? For the medical students, uh, the ones I've talked to and the ones who have written feedback for our our clerkship, uh, things they found most valuable is the opportunity to interact before the start of the day. So so things that we have sent out to them are information about uh, how the course and the day will run, um, calls and expectations that they will have through different parts of their clerkship, and as well as contact information for the clerkship directors and the clerkship coordinators. The key thing as a medical student is to respond to that email uh, if there's any documentations or other things that are needed prior to the first day of your uh, the start of your rotation, uh, please be timely to submit that information so that we have things available. So on the, your first day, we're well equipped to prepare you as well as you are giving us information about yourself. Um, along the course, uh, we'll, we'll have a meeting with you, and um, during that time, that's an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, of course, in the beginning, you won't know what you won't know, so there, the questions might be very few, but as you work with your residents and your uh, attendings, uh, there will be opportunities for you to ask questions of your uh, team when you work with them or ask us questions when you're out of the OR setting and maybe you feel a more comfortable setting where you're not in the operating room taking care of the patients at the same time time that you're learning. Um, always take opportunities to uh, email questions and email feedback, uh, especially if we let you know that there's going to be a, a workshop or a session that's coming up. And if there's any topics you'd like to discuss, always be uh, proactive about generating your own ideas about what would be uh, good for your education. Yeah, absolutely. So the things I've heard you say are responsiveness. So even before the clerkship starts, you're going to get a bunch. I'm sure every clerkship out there is sending some amount of orientation type materials. We send a bunch. 
So read them, respond, let them know little things, right? So like letting the person, the clerkship coordinator or whoever is sending the stuff to you, just shooting an email back to say, I got the materials, thanks so much. So little things like that can go a long way, right? Instead of people just wondering if it got to you and it doesn't take you long to do. But then certainly responding if there are questions, if there are forms they're asking you to fill out. You mentioned, Tina, that we ask our incoming students to send us a picture of themselves along with some facts and answering some questions about themselves. Some are just fun, like a unique thing about themselves, and some are like, what are they thinking they're interested in and what other rotations have they done? Things that will help us tailor their experience for them. So responding to that and doing it early is a way to set a good tone and a good professional tone from the beginning. You mentioned asking questions. I think that's really key pushing yourself, not being shy, not thinking, oh, I better not ask anything because I could be wrong or the question might sound stupid. It's cliche, but there is no such thing as a stupid question, right? Ask questions. And then you mentioned being in touch. So don't be someone who disappears during that clerkship. If you have questions, email. If you get an email from the clerkship directors with a question, write back and do it quickly. Do it the same day. Don't, Don't put it off. And in general, be good with email. It may be that There may be some students who might be more comfortable with other forms of social media or texting or whatever it is, but you do have to know that most clerkship directors are going to be emailers, and so when you are on their clerkship, you're going to want to be checking your email regularly. And I think we tell our students, Tina, to check multiple times each day in case they have an email that we need them to respond to. And then things that I would add are... Show up early, right? So again, this is about being seen as a professional. And I would say whether or not you have any interest in going into anesthesia, every rotation you're on, you want to be seen as professional. You want the question about professionalism to be a no-brainer for you. You want people to say, wow, this student worked hard. They showed up early. They stayed late. They were down to help out with anything. They were a pleasure to have around. You want those things to be said. Those are probably more important than your basic knowledge or the attitude you bring. So come early. Don't cut out early. Don't don't uh, try to you know leave early. Don't be the student who's always asking like, oh, is there anything else you need for me at at noon? And then taking off. Stay, and don't just stay there in the hospital, but stay in the room. Not that when we tell our students, it's okay. Uh, you know, if you have an all day case, it's okay to get settled in, learn some stuff with your resident, and then ask if there's another case you could help start because it is nice to get that experience starting cases. But you don't want to be that that student who after intubation is scanning the list to look for another room to go check out to do another intubation right away. The point of an anesthesia rotation is much more than just learning skills like intubation. It's learning what's happening in the OR, how the ventilators work, how different pressors work and other medications, what that monitor is showing you, how to interpret it, how to respond to changes. There's so many questions you can ask and things you can learn. I could talk to a student for hours just about one piece of the monitor or one piece of data that's coming in, A-line forms and what we can tell from that. So there's a ton to learn in the OR that isn't about just your skills. Another thing I would say is that everyone's excited about intubation, which is fine, and you should learn to intubate on an anesthesia rotation. But the skill that is going to save more lives and help you out the most especially if you're not going into anesthesia, is not intubation, it's mask ventilation. So learning how to mask ventilate well is a huge, hugely important skill that you should learn from an anesthesia rotation. All right, so I think those are some additional key things. Tina, anything on your mind that we've forgotten that really is key for students to keep in mind? I agree with uh, what you just said, Jed. We are perioperative physicians. We uh, we take care of the patient and 
as uh, their personal ICU, per se, and we're taking care of the patient the whole time of the surgery, well into after their surgery, where their post-op destination is. So it's very important to, uh, if you have an opportunity to uh, discuss the patient with your resident the night before, so you can read up on the material in terms of your patient's background, the type of surgery the patient's having, and some related perioperative complications, so you can anticipate that and have more specific questions for your, your residents. And that will make the case more valuable and more interesting to you, rather than coming in and just doing things as your resident's telling you to. Uh, it won't, you won't be as invested. Another valuable thing to remember is when you're on the rotation, introduce yourself to everyone, your resident, um, your attending, fellows if you have them, surgeons, uh, circulators, um, cir- uh, circulating techs as well as nurses, uh, so that they know who you are, your role, and even say, I'm a fourth year, this is my second week of my anesthesia rotation. And so that way they know what you do know and then will be able to guide you in the decision-making and the uh, um, clinical skills that you're able to participate in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The introducing yourself part is so key, and it can be really intimidating as a medical student to do that. You can have this feeling like you're extraneous, you're just a bother. A, for the most part, that's not true, and B, you have to get to know the people if you're going to interact with them well. So sometimes you will have met your resident, but you won't have met your attending or talked to your attending until the morning of. So it's really key to make sure you find your attending in pre-op and introduce yourself so that they don't think you're some random person who's walked into the OR. They know who you are. They see you as their student for the day. So that's really key, especially if you have a system like ours where we pair our students with residents for the week and then they have a different attending every day. If you're paired with an attending for the week, then obviously that's different. You'll already know you're attending. So I think that's key. And also, Jed, sometimes when there's residents who are not on the anesthesia rotation, but they arrive in the OR early, they come and are observant of everything we do, I'll ask them, would you like to mass ventilate? Would you like to intubate or put in a second IV? So they're, they're arriving early and showing interest and introducing them to them, introducing themselves to us will also give them valuable opportunities for uh, clinical opportunities and skills. Absolutely. And then other things I would add, get to know the patient. So make sure you come early enough to see the patient in pre-op. In fact, you should probably come early enough that you can see them with a relaxed amount of time before everyone is, is kind of in a crunch trying to see them. So if in your institution, like in ours, the patient goes back to the OR at 7.30, people start seeing the patient between 7 and 7.30, go at 6.45. That'll give you an uninterrupted 15 minutes where you can chat with the patient, get to know the patient, find out where they're from. You'll be surprised at how much of a difference that can make in terms of the patient being more comfortable if they've met someone who can just chat with them. You don't have to even cover anything medical. You can just figure out where they're from and how long it took them to drive in and whether they have any kids and what their kids are up to and whatever it may be. It can really make a difference. As a medical student, you have that time that not everyone else has. So take advantage of that. Get to know the patient. It can really make a difference for them. Consider help helping your residents set up the operating room. I know that means coming in even earlier. It might mean coming in at 6.15, but it's an interesting thing to learn, how to pull up those medicines, which ones to pull up, thinking through a case and hearing your residents' reasoning as to why they're pulling up the medications they are and not other ones. That's really important learning that you won't necessarily get if you don't come in. And believe me, down the road, you're going to appreciate the learning more than you'll regret losing that extra 15 or 20 minutes of sleep. Also remember, 
if there are other activities happening while you're on the clerkship, maybe grand rounds, maybe there's an education day or a particular lecture that's being given to the residents, you should go to those things. You should consider yourself part of the department of anesthesia when you're on the anesthesia rotation and immerse yourself fully in that. That's how you're going to get the true experience. If you're thinking about anesthesia, you want to do that so that you can really get an idea of what it's like to be an anesthesiologist. But also, that's how you're going to maximize the relationships you'll build, even if you don't go into anesthesia, and the learning that you'll have. And then finally, there may be some other social events or whatever that's going on in your in the anesthesia department while you're there. Don't assume that people don't want you there because you're not a permanent part of the department. We love when our medical students show up to our social events, uh, again, regardless of whether they're going into anesthesia or not. So try to figure out what's going on with that and try to make a point of going if you can. All right. Tina, any last words on this side of things? Uh, no, I think uh, we, we've covered it pretty well. Some medical students have asked me what should they bring with them into the OR. Uh, so things that are important are your stethoscope, uh, paper and pen so that you can write notes or have uh, certain topics you want to discuss and you have them right there in front of you. Uh, we provide discussion topics so you can bring those discussion topics ready to fill out to, and um, review with your, your residents or your faculty members and as well as procedure logs. Uh, students have told me that with those procedure logs even though we emphasize in the beginning you don't have to have a certain number of procedures uh, attempted or successful. It helps them as a basis of when they talk to their residents that these are what my clerkship directors suggest that I do. So that way they can advocate for themselves that they it's within the realm of uh, their opportunities to do these procedures. Absolutely. And then the last thing I thought of is, you know, we will tell students that when the attending comes to give the resident a lunch break, the student should really consider not going at the same time as the resident. You've got plenty of time to talk to the resident, but a very limited time to spend with the faculty member. And so if you let the resident go and you stay in there for that half an hour and chat with the attending, you'll be able to get to know them. You can pick their brain about kind of how they got into anesthesia, what their career is like. And again, that's just an interesting way to build those relationships and learn a little more about anesthesia. You can get your lunch break anytime you want, and you'll have, again, plenty of time with the resident. All right, so let's turn now to some tips for residents in regards to how to be a good teacher of students. Now, I always tell our residents that this is no, there's no cookie-cutter answer to this. It's not all or nothing. It's not the right way and the wrong way. Different people have different styles of teaching and different skills that they bring to the table, different things they're more comfortable with. But there are some things that can help. And so if you were already a teacher, you were a high school teacher for 10 years before going to medical school, then you probably have quite a bit of skill yourself. But if you haven't done a lot of teaching and you're a little nervous about it, then there are some things you can do to help. One is a great model that's called the one-minute preceptor model, and I always share this with our residents and encourage them to use it, and I use it myself when I'm teaching residents, fellows, whoever. It's a really neat way to do a relatively quick and concise teaching. It's based on adult learning theory, and it can really be effective. So how does it work? There's five components. The first component is get a commitment. All right, so what does that mean? It means that you ask, the essential basic form of this is you ask the learner what do you think is going on? And this fits so perfectly in the operating room. So imagine that you're in the operating room, you're a resident, you're in the operating room with a student, and the, you look up and the patient is tachycardic. The heart rate is 110. So you say to the resident, I'm sorry, you say to the student, what do you think is going on? Now their first response may be, I don't know, but that's not a commitment. So you say to them, that's okay, you don't have to be right, 
but you do have to make a commitment. So tell me what you think could be going on. And I, it, you can say to them, and I will say to them, it, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. I'm not judging you. I'm not. Uh, you can be the. You can have the, the most incorrect answer imaginable. Doesn't matter. I just want you to tell me what do you think is going on. So get them to commit. And maybe they say, well, the patient could be having ischemia, or uh, maybe the patient is hypoxic, or maybe the patient forgot to take their beta blocker. Any answer they make. Okay. So then part two is probe for supporting evidence. So you, the key here is you do not respond by saying, no, that's, that actually wouldn't cause tachycardia. So let's say you say, what do you think is going on? The patient's tachycardic. What do you think is going on? And they say, well, maybe we gave too much fentanyl. And so, again, while the answer to that, you might be tempted to say, actually, giving too much fentanyl would probably cause bradycardia and not tachycardia, you don't do that. You say instead, well, tell me what you think. What do you think makes you think that? What makes you think that? Why, why do you think they might be uh, tachycardic for that reason? So let's say they said, well, I think they're tachycardic because they might be having some cardiac ischemia. All right, so you say, so tell me what makes you think that. And then they may tell you whatever. Uh, well, I see what looks like um, kind of funny ST segments on the monitor. Or um, I don't know, I learned in medical school that patients who are having a, a heart attack sometimes get tachycardic or anything. All right. So you say, okay, anything else? What else makes you think that? So you probe for that supporting evidence. Part three is you teach general rules. So this is where you say, okay, so I can totally see where that would have come from. In general, when I see a patient who's tachycardic in the operating room, the first thing I think about is whether they are uh, a little bit light, whether the anesthesia is a little light because that is a very common cause of tachycardia in the operating room. So the first thing I'll do is check and see if maybe they might need a little fentanyl or they might need a little extra anesthetic gas concentration or they may need a little more, a little higher dose of propofol if you're using propofol. So that's the first thing I check. Other things that I would consider are, and then you would give them some other things to consider, but that's teaching those general rules. And then what you've done there is also redirected them toward the best answer without having to make them feel bad about it. Number four is reinforce what was done well. So that's when you're going to say, I like how you thought about ischemia because that's something we really don't want to miss. It's really key to make sure we don't forget that a patient could have cardiac ischemia under general anesthesia, and of course they wouldn't be able to tell us they were having chest pain. So that's great that you thought about that. So you reinforce what they did well. And then five, the final part, is correct errors and offer suggestions for improvement. And so that's where you'd say, so it was great that you thought about ischemia. In general, try to remember that the more common things are what you want to rule out first and then keep those less common but dangerous things in, in your mind to make sure you don't forget and then next time, think about first, is the patient light, and then other possibilities before you get down to the others. And so you give them that, that uh, you c- gently correct their errors and offer their suggestions for what they could do well next time. So that's a five-point model, the one-minute preceptor. It, you can also Google this, and they'll get a million different references to it. But it's a really nice thing to use, and it works really well. You walk into the OR, you just pick something and say, what do you think is going on? Looks like the end tidal CO2 has an upslope. What do you think is going on? Looks like the patient is a little hypotensive. What do you think is going on? Hypertensive. What do you think is going on? So uh, you can always ask those things. The patient's a little bit hypothermic. What do you think is going on? Or let's say nothing looks bad. Everything looks perfect. And you think, oh, can't use the one-minute preceptor model because there's nothing that I can focus on. But you absolutely can. You can walk in and say, so 
What do you think, let's say that the patient's heart rate were all of a sudden to fall to 30. What do you think might cause something like that? Or say the patient's end tidal CO2 were all of a sudden to drop from 40 to 20. What could cause that? Anything you want. So you can make it almost like an oral board scenario where you just throw out a, a scenario that's based on your patient, but that you're, you're adding a little twist, and then you go down that same algorithm. So I think that's a really effective way to teach. So keep that in your back pocket if you want to use it. Other tips that came up, and we asked some of our residents, what do you guys think are key things to remember when you're teaching med students? And one of the things that came up is make sure you include them in little things. It's often easy as a resident to think, oh, you know, I'm not going to ask the student to spike that new IV bag. That's just scut work. But students really want to feel that they're a part of the team and a part of the anesthetic. And remember, they haven't probably spiked a lot of IV bags. So you may, A, have to show them how to do it, and B, letting them do that makes them feel like they're part of the team. So don't discount. Don't start doing things on your own just because you think they're not that exciting. They may not be exciting for you, but they probably are much more exciting for the student. Similarly, let them pull up some meds and be smart about the meds that you ask them to pull up. You probably don't want to hand them your vial of fentanyl or Versed and tell them to pull that up because if they spill it, then you've got to deal with that wastage. But let them pull up some propofol or some ANSEF. If they screw that one up, it's okay. You can get another bottle. So let them pull up meds. Let them give meds. Of course, teach them how to do it. You probably have to watch them the first few times. Teach them how to use the stopcocks. But again, let them administer that Zofran or let them administer a couple of uh, antibiotics or whatever it is that, that they can actually do to get involved. So that was one thing our residents felt was really key. Also, remember as a resident, it can be really exhausting to sit next to a learner for eight, nine, ten straight hours without a break, and you shouldn't feel that you have to do that. There aren't a lot of people out there who can talk to someone nonstop for nine straight hours. That's just not a normal thing to do. And it's very different on the medicine wards or in a, in an OR in surgery, the students are doing other things. But in the anesthesia environment, we're just sitting next to them. And so talk to them, but also feel comfortable saying to the student, hey, why don't you go, uh, our patient has, our next patient has myasthenia gravis. Why don't you go into the lounge, grab a bite to eat, go to the bathroom, and then look up myasthenia and its implications for anesthesia, and then let me know what you think we should do, and we'll chat about it. Or, hey, looks like the schedule's out for the next day. Why don't you go look up our patients, find out everything you can about them, and then we'll, we'll chat about them. So you can give the student some things to do and also give you a chance to catch up on your charting and whatever else you need to do. Another tip is, don't be afraid to say to the student, hey, I just need to focus on the patient for a few minutes, so just hang out, and I'll, then we'll talk about what's going on right now, right? So don't feel bad if you need to focus on the patient. If the patient is unstable, do what needs to be done to take care of that patient, and then you can use whatever happened once the patient is stable as a great learning opportunity to then say to the student, so let's talk about what just happened, and there's a lot we can learn from that. So that's another thing that you can do to make sure that you aren't feeling too distracted. One of the biggest challenges our residents identified is exactly that, that it's hard to split your attention between teaching a student and taking care of a patient. We don't start our, we don't have our CA1s teach students for a variety of reasons, but one is that, that they aren't yet really solidified in their own ability to care for patients and pay that close attention without being distracted by a student. But once you get into a more senior CA2 and CA3, you should be able to do that. It's an important skill to learn. And so you want to keep little things in mind logistically, like position yourself so that 
the, you're, you're facing the monitor and the student, and the student's back is to the monitor. You don't want your back to the monitor. You still want to be able to see the patient in the operating field. And again, it's okay to say to a student, let's pick up this thought in one second. I just want to peek over the drapes. Or, you know, I'm just noticing the heart rate is picking up a little bit. Let's come back to what we were talking about in one second. Let me just make sure I think the patient might need a little dose of fentanyl. Whatever it is, you have to be able to make that bounce back and forth. And don't be afraid to say to the student, hey, just hold on one second. Or you can say to the student, hey, do me a favor. Can you go check the blood canisters? See how much the blood loss is while I try to figure out what's going on up here? So again, make use of the space, make use of the student, get them involved. So those are some key things that you can do to help the student out. And then even though you you may feel like you've got a lot to do, you want to get out of there, Give them a chance to look up the patients for the next day, come up with an anesthesia plan, and present it to you. People learn better when they are have to actually try things rather than when it's done for them. So while you may be tempted to say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just look them up. It'll be easier. Why don't you just go home? You don't want to do that. Let them go through the exercise of looking up the patients and proposing a plan to you. Along those same lines, while you may be tempted to send the student home at noon, because you're trying to be nice to them and you figure, hey, wouldn't it be nice to leave at noon? Remember, this is their one and only chance to learn anesthesia and to learn the skills and the physiology that they're going to learn here. So they need to stay. Don't say, I'm not saying you don't necessarily need to keep them there till six or seven o'clock, but don't send them home in the middle of the morning just because you are trying to be nice. Similarly, we have our students take a call or two overnight with our residents And the same thing. Sometimes our residents are tempted to send the student home at midnight because maybe it's slow and they feel like, yeah, wouldn't it be be nicer for you to sleep in your own bed? But again, you may send them home and 30 minutes later, a major trauma comes in the student could have learned a ton from and they don't get to do that learning because you sent them home. So we always really tell our students, you should stay, even if your resident tries to send you home, stay. It's fine to lay down if nothing's going on, but stay in case anything happens. And then As a resident, just keep that in mind. You can say to a student, like, hey, it's slow right now. Why don't you go lay down or, you know, whatever you want, but don't try to send them home. They may want to stay, but they feel like you're trying to get rid of them, so they don't feel comfortable staying, so don't do that. All right, so those are some key tips that we got from our residents. Now, Tina, I want to turn it over to you. I know you have some more great stuff to add. Yes, Jed. I've had the opportunity to work with uh, medical students when I was a solo posted attending, and this is my way to learn what they've learned from the residents and from their previous weeks on the anesthesia clerkship. So things that have um, stuck out of my mind is students like it when you let them guess the answer or come up with a differential diagnosis or a plan or make some minor mistakes. This will, and then you can guide them along the way. This is uh, sticks in their mind much more effectively than if you guide them along and do everything correctly for them, they'll never understand what a mistake or a different alternative plan looks like. And scut work to a medical student does not exist, especially on the anesthesia rotation. Uh, Things that they do once, let's say for the tachycardia scenario, if you think the patient needs a beta blocker, have them draw up the beta blocker, have them administer the beta blocker, and then have them record it in EPIC. And then see, and have them close that loop of administration, seeing the effect, and recording it 
it in an official document. That way they feel like they've done a complete uh, intervention for the patient. And oftentimes um, I remember when, when one of the medical students who's a fourth year going into another subspecialty, she pushed medication for a patient and she said that felt so rewarding. Like she was doing directly for the patient an opportunity she would not get any in any other rotation. Um, and for, as far as for the uh, uh, residents, it is okay to let us know as your clerkship uh, leadership team when a student or a attending you're working with or a surgery is not a good fit to have a medical student. We don't want you to feel uncomfortable saying that, oh, this is not the best day. Uh, if you can pair the student with somebody else or if you can pair the student with another resident for the rest of the week, uh, they can they will probably have more learning opportunities. That is okay to say. Um, and also, if you are interested in having medical students more often, that's also something you should communicate too. So uh, be uh, proactive in communicating with us, and there's no uh, right or wrong way to communicate whether you want more medical students or just a little less time with them. Uh, give feedback to the medical students as well as ask for feedback because medical students will often have, um, will not ask for feedback, especially when you give feedback, say more about specific things rather than, oh, you did a good job today. Everything went well. See you tomorrow. Um, give them sp specific um, examples of what they did well and what they can practice for when you work the next time together. And then ask the students to give you feedback on your teaching skills because this might be the first opportunity where you get to teach another person. And so uh, it's very important to know what other people are um, observing of your, your teaching skills. And practice verbally directing their skills versus doing it for them and showing, say, watch as I'm administering medication, teach them verbally how to to administer the medication. And this will hone your skills for such things as oral board um, presentations in, in uh, the uh, respect that uh, when you are asked about how to do things on an oral board, you cannot show the examiner how you do it. You'd have to convey verbally in a very effective way how to do it. And then uh, lastly, just expect mistakes. Students don't go into the rotation um, harm, trying to harm the patient or trying to do things that are um, going to have adverse outcomes, but they are medical students. As you remember, when you first started as a medical student or as a CA1 your first day, you will make mistakes and anticipate them. And don't, uh, don't be too worried or don't make the student feel like what they did was egregious. Just let them know this, this was something that we should talk about uh, and there's uh, room for improvement. And let's discuss those, uh, those um, alternative ways can do that. Great. I think those are all great points, Tina. And I just want to echo one that I feel really strongly about that you said, which is feedback. If you, if you play sports, imagine if you had a coach, your team coach for whatever sport you play, who never gave you any tips on how you could improve your game. You would think that was the worst coach you'd ever had. And yet for some reason in medicine, we find it so intimidating to give tips to our learners on how they can improve, to give constructive criticism. It's like everyone's supposed to be perfect all the time, and of course, no one is, and we wouldn't, we won't, can't learn and get better if we don't get that important constructive criticism. So when you're giving feedback, don't be afraid to do it. Do it well. Tell them things that, well, first, the first important thing is ask if this is a good time, right? So you don't want to just assume that someone is in a good place right then at that moment for feedback. So you can say to the student, hey, is now a good time to do some feedback? Tina, like you said, you can ask them, hey, you know, can you give me some feedback on my teaching? And then you can say to them, you know, is this a good time for me to give you some feedback? So f tell them some things they did well. There's going to be stuff, right? Tell them stuff they did well. And then you can tell them, all right, so some things I want you to work on for tomorrow, 
are, and then you give them some tips. You know, when you're doing that A-line, make sure that you don't go at a 90-degree angle. Or, you know, when you're doing that intubation, be really careful of that lip. Whatever it is, give them some concrete things that they can work on. If you think about what you love when you get feedback from attendings, and, and just without exception, our residents want more and better constructive criticism, right? They don't just want to hear, great job, keep reading. They want to know what can they do to improve, as we all do. And so make sure you translate that to your students. Give them those tips that they can use to improve. Do it in a respectful way, but make sure you give it to them. All right. Tina, any last things to add? Uh, No, we've covered it pretty well, Jed. Great. All right. So maybe the last thing we'll do, as I mentioned up front, is let's give a few tips to people out there who may be either running clerkships and are looking for ideas or who are thinking about starting an anesthesia, anesthesia clerkship from the ground up. What do you think, Tina, are some key things to make a really successful clerkship? Uh, the key things are to uh, have a schedule of when your students start. Just expect uh, how many students are on the clerkship for, or for what period of time. If you're fortunate, you'll have students for, let's say, a month at a time. So all your students start at on Monday and then end the Friday of the fourth week. So that would be ideal. But there's uh, certain programs, such as the Hopkins program, where some students can start on a Wednesday and on a Tuesday, and it can range between any, anywhere between two to four weeks. So just knowing when your students will uh, start and when their uh, clerkship will end so that you can um, tailor their needs and when you can meet with them. If possible, meet with the students first so you get to know them face-to-face, interact with them, uh, set your expectations. If possible, do an orientation in the OR because this might be the first time they've been in the OR if this is their first clinical rotation. And just encourage them to ask questions and let them know that uh, they will work with residents, but they it's It's nice to have an orientation when the OR is quiet. There's no patient in the room. Uh, Some of the things I've done in my orientation is have one of the one of the medical students play the part of the patient. So they the other residents or the other medical students will put on monitors and uh, push some of the buttons, know how to get medications and get things from the cart and the anesthesia machine. And uh, have expectations for the the. for the students that are outlined pretty pretty organized in an organized way so the, res- the so the medical students know what to expect for example the first week you should uh, listen to this podcast watch this video and read this article second week also the same thing have guidelines for some resources that they can go through um, and then check in with them via email uh, once a week just to say this is your second week uh, you should be now you should know how to uh, mass ventilate or at least know how to troubleshoot uh, mass ventilation skills and attempt or successfully put in IVs and so they know how they're progressing or how they should be progressing and uh, how the final grade of the clerkship should be so what you're looking for for example if you you require a um, presentation at the end of the clerkship, let them know what percentage of their uh, grade will be that presentation. And then if you do an exit interview or any other part of the, uh, any other paperwork you turn in, just so they have transparently what to, uh, what to expect as far as their grade for the clerkship. Some, uh, some students will go in being very concerned on how they'll do on the clerkship, especially if uh, they are thinking of applying to anesthesiology. So if they know up front what their expectations are and how they will, um, how the the grading will be to achieve the score of honors. Let's say, then they'll be more comfortable and know what they uh, will need to do to uh, achieve those. 
Great. I think those are great tips, Tina, all around. Um, and some of the stuff that, that really is key. So you talked about communicating frequently. You talked about setting expectations up front and making it very clear what the expectations are in terms of what they will do and how they will be graded. Um, having both an orientation uh, up front and then an exit interview at the end where maybe you do a case presentation, but certainly you check in with the students as they go out to see how their experience was. Evaluations are key. Have them evaluate the rotation, uh, ideally anonymously, and then use those evaluations. Um, tell them weekly, as you said, things to do, reading, podcasts to listen to, whatever. Um, and then, of course, having we have a list of discussion topics that we give them to take around, and we tell them, you know, these are this is basically what the final test is going to cover. So make sure you talk about all these things over the course of your clerkship. So having all that stuff and putting it together, I think, is always a really good idea. Uh, and then the, probably my biggest advice and the most important thing is be always on the lookout for improvement. So don't, don't work to get a clerkship together and then park it and say, great, we're done. Think about innovations, ways to change. Are the, you know, do we want to try having them take call? Nope, maybe that doesn't work. We went through a bunch of iterations of what time to have them show up for call, and we just adjusted it till we found what was right. So just think it through and then be constantly looking for improvement, uh, as you, of course, would in your clinical practice or anything else, so that you can put together the best clerkship you can and then use those students' feedback to make sure you put together the best thing you possibly can. Great. And then uh, students love it if uh, the leadership and other residents are uh, approachable. So we always offer them opportunities to come meet with us, whether they would like uh, counseling on their career path, if they would like a letter of recommendation, or other other questions they have about how to proceed at this point with applying for uh, residency and beyond. Then just being available and having opportunities for them to come and discuss that with you is also very key. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say is I think it's a big mistake when and anyone, and especially a clerkship director uh, or a residency director, implies to a student that they are tr- really invested in wanting them to go into that field. Because you, that's actually not what you want, right? If you think about it, you don't want to make students, you don't want to kind of talk students into going into your field. You want students to learn about your field and then decide if it's what they think is best for them. The last thing you want is a student feeling pressured to go into your field and even deciding to apply in it because they felt bad not doing it, right? You, you do not want students ending up in your field because it's what you want. You want them going into it if it's what they want. So I always tell students up front, we are glad you're on this clerkship. We want you to learn anesthesia. We think this will be useful for you no matter what you go into. If you decide you are interested in anesthesia, that's great, and we're happy to talk about the career path. If you decide you're not interested in anesthesia, that's totally great too. You should pursue whatever you think is best for you. So I think that's a really important message. Too often, I know I felt it as a med student, and I think often med students go through, and each rotation they feel like they have to say, uh, yeah, I'm interested in this, when you're asked what you're interested in, because they feel like if they don't, it'll affect their grade. They have to express interest in going into whatever rotation they're on, and that's a little bit ridiculous. One of my really close friends and mentors who was once a teacher of mine when I was in med school, Dan Lowenstein, at UCSF used to always say to me he thought this was crazy. He's a neurologist, and he would say he just never understood why anyone would try to get someone to go into neurology because that's what that person does, right? You don't want someone to go into your field because of you, because it's what you want. You want them to do it because it's what they want. That always resonated with me, and I pass that on to my students now as well. So thanks, Dan, for always uh, imparting that great knowledge along with lots of other fantastic knowledge to me. All right, so we're going to wrap it up. 
to all of you out there uh, as students, good luck on your clerkships. I think this information can be really helpful, whether you're going on to an anesthesia clerkship or a lot of this can actually apply to any clerkship you're on. To the residents out there who are trying to be good teachers, hopefully we've given you some good tips. Keep trying. Keep modifying your practice. You're going to do a great job, and your students are going to be grateful. And to anyone out there working on being a clerkship director, keep fighting the good fight. We admire you for what you're doing. Thanks so much, Tina, for coming back on the show. Great. Thank you, Jed. All right. Hopefully that was really helpful. If you're out there, you're a student, you're a resident, you're a clerkship director, let us know if you think we had some good tips. I'm sure there's stuff we missed, so leave a comment at ACRAC.com so that others can learn from what you have to say just as much as they can learn from what we have to say. You can also, of course, email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You can join the mailing list on the website in the upper right-hand corner. And you can also, if you are a fan of the show and you have a minute, go to iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you'd like to support the making of the show, consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it can make a big difference and we really appreciate it. Special thanks, as always, to Brian Park for the awesome outlines that he makes for some of our episodes, and to all of our patrons who are already patrons at Patreon. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. That's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Tina Tran, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.